Hey y'all, you should be standing at the railing overlooking the beautiful Savannah River. Just to your left is a beige building with a wrought iron bridge leading to the front entrance. That entrance is to the Old Harbor Inn. Directly behind you is the Park and Pay Station and just beyond that, the park. Take a look out over that water. The Savannah River is one of the most spectacular features of this city, but I didn't bring you here because it's pretty. I brought you here because this river is where one of the most character-defining stories about our city starts. It's the story of Prohibition. You see any boats going by? This river is one of the busiest shipping routes in all of the USA. And during Prohibition, gentlemen smugglers and entrepreneurs used the river and all its tributaries to move good strong hooch in and out of our city. As you may know, Savannah has always had a reputation for booze in its blood. So we didn't take well to government coming in and telling us to go dry. Prohibition across the United States started in the 1920s, but you may not realize that the state of Georgia banned alcohol in 1907, a full 13 years earlier. The Drys, folks who wanted to get rid of booze, saw Georgia as a test case for prohibition across the nation. But as it turned out, Savannah used our head start to figure out how to resist prohibition at every turn. In fact, we got so good at keeping liquor flowing during the Georgia ban, other cities actually came to us to learn how to do it. But decades after prohibition ended, we were still battling restrictive blue laws, rules about where and when you could buy or drink alcohol. Because, like I said, we like our hooch. Starting in the 1950s, a whole new generation of bar owners took inspiration from the speakeasies and rum running of the 1920s and found ways to keep the drinks flowing during those restrictive times. Hi, my name is Kim Icavosi, and my daddy was one of those bar owners. From the 1950s through the late 1970s, he ran a whole mess of bars, some more legal than others, right here in Savannah. Today, I'm going to tell you about Prohibition and our refusal to accept the last call. It's a story about resistance, cleverness, and the right of our personal freedoms. And like most tales, it goes down better with a drink. So let's get going. Okay, facing the river, turn around towards the park. Cross the road ahead of you carefully, watching for cars on the left. Keep walking through the park towards the street in front of you. See that stoplight ahead just a bit to the left? That's where we're headed. Even before the state banned alcohol in 1907, we had to fight for our right to imbibe. That fight dates all the way back to the very founding of the colony. When you get to the crosswalk ahead, hit the button and cross the street when the light changes. I'll meet you on the other side. All right, hang a left here and keep walking with the river across the street on your left. Georgia was founded right here in Savannah by James Oglethorpe in 1733. He wanted the colony to be a place where debtors, outsiders, and folks fleeing persecution could be free from the inequalities in Europe. Oglethorpe had four strict rules for Georgia. No Catholics, no slaves, no lawyers, and no liquor. But a lot of the early colonists were sailors and hard-working folk not exactly the types to embrace a no-liquor rule. Now, Oglethorpe may have been anti-booze, but his right-hand man, William Horton, sure wasn't. Dysentery was taking a nasty toll on the colony. Horton knew that beer, because of the brewing process, 
was much safer than the water the people were drinking. So in 1734, while Oglethorpe was on a trip back to England, Horton took matters into his own hands. There's a crosswalk up ahead at that lamppost. When you get there, hit the button and cross when it's safe. I'll meet you on the other side. Okay, hang a right and keep walking away from the river. With Oglethorpe away, Horton loosened the rules concerning booze. Oglethorpe was none too pleased with Horton when he got back and called for his resignation. But when he saw the drop in dysentery deaths, he realized the error of his ways. He eventually bequeathed Jekyll Island, a large island about a hundred miles south of here, to Horton. Careful crossing this driveway here. And you know what Horton did? He founded the South's very first brewery right there on Jekyll Island. Imagine that. See the old building with the blue shutters? That's our first stop. Watch for cars on the left as you cross the driveway, and then stop in front of the old tree ahead on your right. We have now arrived at the oldest watering hole in all of Savannah. Welcome to the Pirate's House. The Pirate's House opened as an inn for sailors way back in 1753. And like most inns at the time, it had a tavern on the first floor where the sailors drank before they headed to a room upstairs to sleep it off. The part of the building closest to us is called the Herb House, and it's thought to be the oldest building left in Savannah. It dates back to 1734, the same year Oglethorpe relaxed his rules about alcohol. The Herb House was originally the home and office of the gardener in charge of Trustee's Garden, which was established to grow all sorts of medicinal herbs for the ailments of the colony. The garden took up the parking lot to your left in that grassy area beyond it. Of course, it wasn't long before the folks in Savannah preferred to solve their ailments with the kind of remedy served inside the tavern instead. From early on, Savannah was an important port city, and that meant that all sorts of seamen came through. The merchants sailing legally and the pirates and rogues that this place was named after were a rowdy bunch with a taste for booze, particularly rum. So in their honor, let's go get a dram of the good stuff. Okay, with the street behind you, head towards the sign that says Pirate's House Entrance. The sidewalk doesn't go all the way, so just keep an eye out for cars in the parking lot. Stop for a second when you get to the door and stand to the left out of the way. All right, in a moment, we're going to go inside to the bar. It'll be on your left when you enter just in front of the host stand. Order a drink. I suggest the Dark and Stormy, a classic rum cocktail with ginger beer. But when you order, ask for that drink to go. That's right, my friends. Here in Savannah, it's been legal to drink on the street since 1998. I'll tell you how that happened a little bit later. Now, after you've gotten your drink and settled your tab, ask if it's cool for you to take a look at the rum cellar. If it's not too busy, they'll be happy to direct you. And I'll tell you more about that when we meet back up. But for now, pause me, take out your headphones, Go get your dark and stormy to go. And when you're back outside, press play and we'll keep walking. All right, you got your drink? The dark and stormy is the perfect cocktail to honor the pirates and sailors who drank here before us. Now, with the door to the pirate's house behind you, turn left and head back to the sidewalk. Hang a left here and walk with the pirate's house on your left. As you walk, take a look down to the left at those openings between the building and the sidewalk. Those are windows down into the rum cellars. There's a lot of stories about those cellars, 
and the tunnel that ran between the pirate's house and the river. No one knows exactly when the tunnel was built, but most likely it was right after the tavern was opened. And from the mid-1700s to the 1800s, that tunnel had a couple of uses. The most infamous was to Shanghai sailors. See, the pirates who made Savannah their port of call always needed fresh crew. And if a sailor had too many in the tavern and passed out, the pirates would carry him, unconscious, through that tunnel and out to the river where boats would be waiting to pick him up. By the time the poor unlucky bastard woke up, the pirate ship was halfway to China, hence the term Shanghai. Just keep walking straight. We're headed to that big intersection up ahead. These buildings on your left are some of the oldest in the city. Now another, and less nefarious, use of the tunnel was to smuggle rum into the city. See, when Oglethorpe tried to impose a booze ban, he accidentally created a black market. Colonists wanted their rum, and there were folks who were more than happy to get it for them at a price. These bootleggers sailed down to Cuba or further into the Caribbean to pick up barrels and brought them ashore onto the riverbanks. From there, they just rolled them through the secret tunnel straight into the rum cellar of the tavern. So you can imagine the ratty crowd that attracted. In Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson based the inn where the notorious Captain Flynn spent his last night on the pirate's house itself. At the corner ahead, turn right and cross when it's safe. Keep an eye out for cars on your left and right. I'll meet you on the other side. Now that you're on the other side, keep walking straight. Those bike racks will be on your left, and we're going to pass the big building on our right all the way to the next corner. Now, you might think that once Oglethorpe loosened his rules, Savannah was one big, boozy free-for-all. But the truth is, there's been ongoing tensions between the teetotalers and the drinkers for years. You can trace it back to the early days of the colony when you had hard-drinking sailors working the port on one hand and devout folks who came here for religious freedom on the other. That tension also fueled a battle between the city of Savannah and the state of Georgia. Dating back to before the 1820s, the state made some early attempts at temperance. That's the folks who wanted to outlaw booze. But it was in the 1850s that the temperance movement started to gather momentum through the state and eventually the county. The temperance movement in Georgia was based on a strong, mostly religious belief that alcohol was evil and banning it would be good for society. Hang a right here and keep walking down this brick sidewalk. Now their argument had its roots in some real issues. In the 1800s, folks weren't exactly practicing restraint when it came to booze. There were sad cases of men drinking away their paychecks and leaving their families with nothing. But despite these nobler intentions, many in the temperance movement were also motivated by something darker, and that was racism. Carefully cross this lane up ahead and keep walking towards the square. By the 1850s, the slave population in Georgia was growing fast. We had nearly 281,000 enslaved people. And slaves outnumbered whites, which made a lot of white people downright panicky. What if a large group of slaves got drunk and decided to riot or rebel? This never actually happened but the fear of it motivated many in the temperance movement. At the corner here, watch for cars on your left and cross into the square. See the lamp post and bench up there on your right? Take a left right there. Whatever their reasons, these drives started making concerted efforts to curb consumption of alcohol in Savannah 
and as a matter of fact all over Georgia. Sometimes they did that through protests and lobbying. Sometimes they did it by appealing to the morals and decency of the public. And sometimes they did it by tempting the wets with the allure of a warm bed and a good night's sleep. Let me show you what I mean. All right, y'all. Stop here with that lamp post on your left and that stone wood bench to your right. See that building across from you there, the one with the dark roof and the five windows across the top? That there is the Seaman's House. It was built in 1850 as a boarding house for the seafarers. Those were the men who worked on the river. The rooms behind those windows were pretty nice compared to the other inns around town, including the pirate's house. But there was a catch. At the seaman's house, there was no drinking. And if you broke that rule, they'd toss you out on your butt, and you'd have to find lodging at an inn with less luxurious quarters. So you had a choice. Don't drink and sleep in a nice bed, or sleep at the tavern. Places like the seaman house helped the temperance movement get a foothold in Savannah. About four years after the Seaman's House was built, Edward Anderson ran for mayor on a law and order ticket. He promised to crack down on the licensing of taverns and arrest people for public intoxication. Turns out there were enough people who were tired of the drunks and Mayor Anderson won in a landslide. And he did everything he promised. Still got that drink in your hand? Hell, on Anderson's watch, you'd be thrown in jail right now for standing in this square and drinking it. But Anderson's reign didn't last because of the wets who fought him tooth and nail while he was in office. Now the wets loved their liquor for sure, but there was something more at stake for them. They didn't want the government telling him what to do or how to live their lives. There is a long-running theme in Savannah. We embrace our personal liberties as much or more than we embrace a great bottle of rum. And opposition to Anderson was so strong that he didn't even run for re-election. It wasn't Savannah's last call yet. Okay, facing the Seaman's house, turn left and follow the path you're on towards the street. Of course, the Dries didn't give up after Anderson was ousted. They may have lost the battle, but they were still out to win the damn war. Cross straight out of the square, watching for cars to your right as you exit. All right, now that you're all across the street, just continue walking. Attempting to curb alcohol at the city level hadn't worked, or hadn't worked for long. So the Dry's next move would be to take their cause higher, and that was to the state capitol. Up ahead there, you'll see a small gravel road, what we Savannians call lanes. Stop there, but don't cross. This here is East Congress Lane. Look down at this dirt road. It's the same as it's been for the last 200 years. So let's travel back in time as we walk down it. Turn right and walk down the lane towards that blue carriage house on the right. Very few cars come down this way, but keep an eye out just in case. If you want to picture it, picture this. Horses tromping past you, kicking up the dust, the smell of manure in the air, maybe even a fight rolling out of that carriage house. It's April 1854. Mayor Anderson is still in office, busy cracking down on public drinking and closing down bars. But one of Savannah's most notorious saloons has managed to stay open right here at the end of this lane. And after the drunk seaman got booted from the seaman's house we just passed, he probably stumbled down this lane looking for his next drink. Like all Savannah bars in the late 1800s, this one was a rough and tumble place. 
But its story is less about the drinks that were served and more about who they served and how. Now y'all should be approaching the end of the lane. Stop on the red brick sidewalk to your left and face the white building with the red doors on the corner across from you. I know, it doesn't look like much now, but that right there was the bar I've been telling you about. It dates all the way back to 1841, when it was opened by a man named Stephen Timmons. Well, we don't know what Timmons called it, but we do know it stayed a pub all the way through the late 1960s. In Timmons' day, the real illegal stuff happened in that carriage house out back. You know, gambling, fighting, my kind of a place. See, this was a place where folks rebelled against laws they didn't feel were just, and that wasn't just about liquor and cards. About 100 years after Timmons opened this place, the bar had changed hands and was now called Tommy's Place. Take a look at the photo on your phone. That, folks, is Tommy's back around 1937. During the era of the Jim Crow South, it was still here and still rebelling. Take a look at the door to the right of the front entrance. Now look at your phone. There it is in 1937. That door was the colored entrance to Tommy's. Unfortunately, racism in the South didn't disappear after the Civil War. In fact, Southern states' resistance to emancipation ushered in some egregious laws, called Jim Crow laws, that not only encouraged but enforced racial segregation. And of course, that included bars where people loosened up and socialized. So Tommy's was forced to have that separate colored's entrance. But at Tommy's, this entrance was just a facade. Once patrons were inside the door, they all mingled together, both black and white. There was no separation, and no one here cared about the color of your skin, as long as you were drinking. That entrance was the bare minimum required so that the bar could stay open. Even after the laws requiring those separate entrances was repealed in the mid-1960s, African Americans were still barred from getting liquor licenses to open bars in their own communities. My daddy saw that injustice and decided to help these potential bar owners even though it meant breaking the law. By that point, my dad had been running bars for about a decade, so he knew the ins and outs of the business and was happy to teach these new juke joint owners how to operate their own bar. Typically, he would lend them money to get the bar open, and he would put his own pool tables and jukeboxes in the bar. The revenue from the pool tables and the jukeboxes paid off the loan, and as soon as the loan was clear, Daddy would then split the revenue of the jukebox and the pool table with him, and that established the business. Finally, in the late 1960s, it became legal for African Americans to get a bar license and become a legitimate bar owner. Okay, let's get going. With Tommy's in front of you, cross the lane on the same side of the street you're on. Pass Tommy's and keep on walking. I think James Oglethorpe's legacy of fighting for equality here is a big part of what influenced folks like the owners of Tommy's and my dad. There's another lasting mark that Oglethorpe left on this city, and we're literally walking through it right now. All right, cross straight up here, watching for cars to your left, and keep on walking. Oglethorpe wasn't just the founder of Savannah. He also designed the city, laying it out in a series of what he called wards. Each ward was eight city blocks with a square in the center. And right now, you're walking through Warren Ward. Okay, stop up here at the corner and look at that little cottage with the red roof. Why am I giving you this little city planning lesson? Because it helps answer this question. How is it that a rowdy place like Tommy's was allowed to serve so close to this quiet residential neighborhood? 
Oglethorpe designed the city so that people within each ward had access to everything they needed for home, business, and leisure. Now, I don't think bars were what he had in mind, but you can bet by the 1800s, each ward had a good old drinking saloon. And until it closed in the late 1960s, Tommy's Place just happened to be the bar for Warren Ward, where we are now. From the 1700s through the 1800s, Warren Ward was an Irish neighborhood. All the houses up and down this street looked just like that little cottage right there. Now, there were significant class differences in the Irish community. There were the Billy Goat Irish, who were the working-class, blue-collared folks who'd frequent places like Tommy's. And then there were the Lace Curtain Irish. Those were the folks who'd moved into the middle class by then. The Billy Goat Irish tended to live in small places like the cottage. The Lace Curtain Irish lived in fancier two-story homes like the one across the street to the right of the cottage. But the one thing that brought them all together was Savannah's St. Patrick's Day Parade. Savannah's first St. Patty's Day Parade was held in 1824 with a small group of Irish parading through the streets. But it grew every year especially with large waves of Irish immigration, first during the 1930s when they came to help build the railroads, and later during the potato famine. Now we have one of the biggest St. Patrick's Day parades in the entire country. And you know what the Irish love to do, especially during the St. Patrick's Day parade? No? Well, take a look at that go-cup in your hand. Our St. Patrick's Day parade is responsible for you being able to walk around this town with a plastic cup in your hand drinking a beverage of your choice. Since the beginning of the parade, people have been drinking all along this parade route. As the celebration grew, it became harder and harder to enforce the public liquor laws during the parade and festivities that led up to it. There were just too many people to enforce the blue laws. And finally, in the late 1990s, the city realized that letting people enjoy their drinks in the open benefited the city. People stayed out later and spent much more money. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The drives in the late 1800s were gaining momentum for the prohibition of alcohol, and the wets were not about to let them win that fight. When it's safe, cross both streets in whichever order makes sense so that you're on the same side as the cottage, and I'll meet you over on the other side. With the cottage on your right, start walking down this red brick sidewalk. Near the turn of the century, a whole new generation of prohibitionists were coming onto the scene and they were maybe not as influential in Savannah as the Women's Christian Temperance Union or the WCTU. The WCTU was founded in Cleveland, Ohio in 1874, and by 1879, they were one of the largest and most influential women's groups in the entire country. Their mission? To create a sober and pure world. Ah, right. We wets weren't going to make it easy for them. Not by a damn sight, y'all. We're coming up on Warren Square. Watch out for cars on your left as you cross the street. In 1899, the WTCU helped lead the lobby in favor of the Willingham Bill, the first official legislative attempt to institute prohibition in Georgia. Make a right at this first path, and then left when you get to the stone benches and planters, and keep walking straight. It passed in the Georgia House, but was nearly defeated in the state Senate. It was a loss, true. But it showed the WCTU and the drives that they were making real progress. Then, in 1907, Hoke Smith, a proud dry, was elected governor and the drives got their break. Now they had another shot at enacting prohibition across the state. Okay, turn right and cross out of the square. 
Watch out for cars to your right. Make a left here and keep walking. The state was swinging towards temperance, but Savannah sure wasn't. The city was opposed on multiple grounds, not the least of which was the feeling that prohibition wouldn't actually curb drinking. Savannah's mayor, George Tideman, argued, Drinking will not decrease, and liquor will be sold, but without license or regulation. But with a pro-temperance governor, the Drys finally got enough representatives on their side to pass a statewide prohibition bill in July of 1907. Governor Smith signed the bill and proclaimed it to be the happiest day of his life. A full 13 years before the 18th Amendment enacted prohibition nationwide. But our mayor was right. Savannians weren't going to give up their personal freedom to the state. So you know what they did? They started looking for loopholes. Let's cross the intersection up ahead, watching for cars both ways. Look for a big tree and stop to the right of it, facing the white building. Welcome to Abe's on Lincoln. That name has changed over the years, but this establishment holds the oldest continually operating liquor license in Savannah, and hell, maybe even in Georgia. It dates all the way back to the 1780s. As you have probably noticed, a lot of spots in Savannah claim to be the oldest this and the longest that, so you can take these claims with a grain of salt, because this one is definitely the real deal. So, if booze was banned in Savannah in 1907, how'd they keep their license in effect? We don't know for sure, but here's my theory. I think Abe's became a near-beer saloon. This was one of the first loopholes in the law that folks around here exploited. The law didn't ban all alcohol. The language just prohibited establishments from serving any beverage that contained more than 5% alcohol. So folks around here started brewing beer with less than 5% alcohol in a bottle. And they called it near beer. Bam! Drinking was legal again and Abe's could stay open. Except nobody really wanted to drink that weak-ass stuff. So what did places like Abe's do? They poured out the near beer and replaced it with the real thing. Now, this wasn't really a well-kept secret, but at the time, there was no easy way to test for alcohol content on the premises. So the drives had a hard time proving it was illegal, and the near-beer saloons just kept on serving. Actually, we are very near a beer right now. In a moment, we'll head into Abe's for our next drink. They've always got some great local brews on draft, so order one of those in honor of our Wiley Prohibition near-beer brewers. One more thing when you go inside. Take a look at the walls and ceilings. They're covered with napkin drawings of Abraham Lincoln done by patrons. So if you're feeling artistic, you should do one of your own. Either way, it's a great spot to use the camera and the app to snap a picture and share it. Just close the camera when done. Okay, pause me. Go inside and grab yourself a beer. And when you're done and back outside, hit play to continue. You back with me and properly hydrated? With the door of Abe's behind you, make a right and cross the street checking for cars on your left. Now, near-beer saloons use the language in the law to keep drinking legal, but locals got even more creative and uh, illegal to keep the booze flowing. Ever heard of a blind tiger or a spotted pig? I'm not talking about some kind of weird local pet, although that's exactly what these places promised. Watch for cars and cross the street up ahead. At these establishments, Patrons bought a ticket to go inside and see an attraction. But what do you know? That ticket came with a free drink. And the law didn't prohibit giving away booze. Another Savannah loophole. 
locals also opened up locker clubs to drink. These weren't bars where somebody could go in and pay for each drink they ordered. They were social clubs that people paid a fee to to join. And after they joined, they were given a cubby to store a bottle of liquor that they could drink whenever they came in. Cross the street here and turn right onto the other side. The law said liquor couldn't be seized where it was stored unless it was being stored for the purpose of sale. But these clubs weren't selling anything but a membership. Keep walking with the center block building on your left. The cost of the alcohol was folded into the membership fee, so there was nothing the authorities could do. Of course, the local authorities weren't very motivated to shut down the locker clubs because they were taxed by the city, and most were probably members anyway. Locker clubs started springing up even before the 1907 bill was passed, just in case. So by 1908, there were something like 147 of them in just Savannah. And at the height of Georgia Prohibition, there were more than 400 places selling booze through loopholes in the law. One organization, the Silent Legion, tried to use a public nuisance injunction to shut down these bars since they couldn't get them on the sale of alcohol. Guess how many they actually closed? Just seven. Then, in 1914, the Anti-Saloon League, a temperance organization organized by the state, went undercover. They patronized a bunch of locker clubs, near beer saloons, and blind tigers and bought booze. Then they took this evidence to two different grand juries in Savannah, expecting to finally get a win. But the grand juries took no action because they were mostly made up of wets. Okay, stop at the corner and look to the right towards that square. See that statue over there in the square? The one that's all lit up? That's where we're headed. Watch for cars to your left and cross the street into the square. Go ahead, walk right up to that statue. I'm going to introduce to you one of our most famous residents, John Wesley. He's basically the patron saint of temperance here in Savannah because he's also the founder of Methodism. Yeah, the religion. And what was one of the main credos of Methodism? You guessed it. No booze. Now stop right there at the base of the statue. Okay, are you under old John Wesley's gaze? Wesley came to Savannah in 1736 at Oglethorpe's request. Oglethorpe wanted Wesley to spread his deep Protestant faith. Remember Oglethorpe's rule, no Catholics? Almost immediately upon arriving, Wesley went after liquor. Wesley even wrote a book in 1745 called Word to a Drunkard, one of my favorite novels, and one of the passages reads in part, On what motive do you thus poison yourself? Only for the pleasure of doing it? What? Will you make yourself a beast? Or rather a devil? Oh, never call yourself a Christian. Never call yourself a man. You are sunk beneath the greater part of the beasts that perish. But Wesley's firebrand temperance pissed off locals who liked their alcohol. Oglethorpe's ban wasn't going to stop folks from drinking, and John Wesley sure wasn't either. They started looking for a reason to run Wesley out of the colony, and damn if he didn't give him one. Wesley became embroiled in a lover's quarrel and quickly left the colony in 1737, just a year after he arrived. Well, old Wesley wasn't here to see it, but he eventually did get his wish. After years of wets slipping through the loopholes in the state prohibition laws, Savannah found itself with another dry mayor, Wallace J. Pierpont. Okay, facing the front of the statue, walk past it, 
Keep an old man Wesley on your right. Take the path up ahead on your left and walk towards the big house across the street from the square. Pierpont didn't waste any time. He was elected in 1915 and quickly pushed through a bill to close all the loopholes that had kept liquor flowing in Savannah. Now that didn't put an end to our drinking. It just meant the wets and their saloons they ran really had to go underground. So four years later, in 1919, when the federal government passed the 18th Amendment and Prohibition went national, we Savannians were prepared. As you approach the edge of the square, cross the street ahead watching for cars to your right, head to the pink building on the corner. Stop next to the tree just to your left at the corner of the building. This is the old pink house. At the corner of this building, you should see some stairs going down to a door and a not-too-obvious sign hanging above it that says the Planter's Tavern. This house was built in 1771, and even though the Planter's Tavern has only been here since the 70s, it feels like you're stepping into an original Savannah Tavern because you kind of are. The house was built for James Habersham, the acting governor of the colony. And believe it or not, part of my family dates back to James Habersham. I'll tell you about that in a little bit, but hell, let's get a drink. When you walk in the door, you'll see a piano player to your left near the fireplace. She's been there almost 25 years, so feel free to make a request as you sip your cocktail. And all the cocktails in this place are really great, although I recommend something with whiskey or bourbon to take you back in time to the 1920s. Okay, pause me, head outside, and hit play when you're finished and back outside the bar. Okay, ready to move on? Facing the square with John Wesley, turn left and head to the corner. Remember how I said my family dates back to James Habersham, the governor who lived in that house? Make a left here and continue walking. My father came to Savannah from New York after World War II, which makes me a first-generation Savannian. But I did what many Southern gentlemen do. I married up. My wife Helen is eight generations in this city. She is the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of the one and only James Habersham. As a matter of fact, and I had no choice in this matter. We named our first son James Habersham Ikevosi. Got a good ring to it, doesn't it? That's right, her family lived in the pink house way back at the beginning, and now my son, who is very proud of it, loves to come here and eat with the family. See, Savannah is all about tradition in some ways, and one of those traditions is to buck the system when we have to. All right, y'all, make a right up here at this corner and carefully cross the street. James Habersham came over to Savannah in 1738, just a few years after Oglethorpe, and he was a very powerful man in the colony, even before he became the third governor of Georgia. But I want to tell you a story about his sons, James Jr., Joseph, and John, from whom my wife was descended. Watch for cars both ways as you cross over this parking lot and the lane ahead, and keep walking straight. The elder James was devoted always to the British crown, as he was a loyalist. But in the 1770s, his sons became revolutionaries, and they helped plan the South's role in the American Revolution. When push came to shove, they told James that they believed he was on the wrong side of the war. They actually put their own father in jail so he couldn't stop their plans. You see, even though we take pride in our families here in Savannah, we also stand up for what we believe in, even when that means throwing our daddies in jail. All right, guys, you're approaching Bay Street. Stop at the corner and hit that button to cross and I'll meet you on the other side. Okay, you're on the other side of Bay Street. See that circular planter with the lion statue in the middle? 
You're going to walk to the left of that toward the building that says Tours and Gifts on the black awning. See that blue sign that says Vicks on the river? Stop when you get there. Stop here at the top of these stairs. When you go down these steps, make sure you hold on to that rail real tight. When you get to the bottom of the steps, you'll see a big ramp down to the river. Okay, go ahead and start down the stairs now and don't forget, hold tight. I'll shut up for a second and meet you down there. Okay, take that ramp towards the river until you see a little boat statue that says Tinkerbell in front of you. Stop on the sidewalk at the bottom before you cross. As you walk, take a look at the light shimmering on that beautiful Savannah River out there. You see any steamboats? We're back at the beginning of our story, and this is where Savannah's bootlegging happened during the colonial days and where we continued to rum run even after the Georgia ban right on through the 18th Amendment. When that federal prohibition was passed, you can bet the rest of the country started looking to us for some advice, and maybe even a taste of the hard stuff itself. See, after the 18th Amendment passed, the city elected a committed wet as mayor, and officials immediately started looking the other way. And Savannah became one of the most reliable sources for liquor in the nation. Okay. Cross the street towards the Tinkerbell boat, watching for cars to your left. Turn left when you get to the other side and walk straight along the sidewalk. Take a look at that beautiful river. It's one of the main reasons that Savannah was central for smuggling alcohol. All up and down the Georgia coast, there are small islands, inlets, and coves. Great places for bootleggers to hide out, prepare for runs, and transfer shipments into and out of the city onto larger boats. And Savannah's busy port was actually a great cover for this illegal activity because it was easy to blend in with the legal boats. Now take a look at the buildings along this street. Some of these historic buildings are well over 200 years old. They've been here since the days when this became one of the busiest ports in the country. You might see a lot of t-shirts and taffy now. But during Prohibition, most of these buildings were used as warehouses for goods like cotton and textiles. And behind the scenes, they were also used for rum running. Now look at those stones in the street. The larger ones you'll see up ahead at that ramp are ballast stones. They were used to balance the weight of the ships carrying cargo into this port as far back as the early 1700s. When the ships emptied the cargo, they dumped the stones and the city reused them to make this street and the ramps. Now, you should see a massive building in front of you that actually crosses over the street. See the ramp just before it? Turn left and head up that ramp. Those big round stones under your feet up at the ramp? Those are ballast stones. We're going to follow this ramp up and around to the left. Of course, the alcohol still had to get moved around the city to and from the river. Trucks had to drive barrels across the river to South Carolina and way beyond. Hell, local legend has it that Savannah Hooch made it all the way up to Chicago. All that booze coming and going through Savannah is what gave us our nickname, the Bottleneck of Georgia. Because alcohol came from all over Georgia through our small city and then spread out all over the rest of the country, that's what gave us our name, or vice versa. 
Now you should see some big empty brick vaults ahead to your right. Keep walking towards them, just make sure to hug the right side of the cobblestone street. Savannah had a great reputation for distilling. During the federal prohibition, a lot of the illegal hooch being distilled in other states would literally blind or kill you, but not the stuff we were making. Let's stop just past this last vault. There may be cars parked alongside, so just find a spot where you can see the brick wall. See, we had a head start on moonshining starting in 1908, so by 1920, we'd more or less perfected that recipe. Take a good look at that wall. You should see something that looks like a bricked-over archway. According to local lore, there's a whole system of tunnels dating back to the late 1700s that were used to move all sorts of goods, both legal and illegal, between River Street and the businesses up top on Bay Street. This archway is thought to have been the entranceway to one of them. And like the tunnel back at the Pirate's House, this one would have been used for smuggling liquor in and out. Imagine those bootleggers rolling barrels of everyone's favorite spirits up the tunnels and into the basements of the speakeasies that were operating on the street just above. Of course, the authorities got wind of it. Jesse M. Mercer, a prohibition agent back in 1920, targeted Savannah for enforcement. He openly accused Mayor Stewart and the local police of allowing whiskey to be served in saloons while winking at it all. He wasn't exactly wrong. Turn and look up to your right. You see that big gray and white building with the gleaming gold dome on top? You guessed it. That's our city hall. So it's pretty unlikely that all that alcohol was being moved right underneath the nose of the government. Hell, I guarantee you that some of those boys in that hall were folks in the booze business themselves. It must have driven old Mercer nuts. Okay, facing the bricked-over tunnel, turn right and head back towards City Hall in the direction we came in. You'll see a set of steps to your left, just past those brick vaults. So in the end, Savannah was sort of providing a public service to all those other states, getting them good liquor and helping them figure out how to keep it all flowing. Head up these steps on your left. Meanwhile, all across the country, there were debates raging between the drives who pushed for prohibition and a whole country full of wets who were ready to see it all end. At the top of the steps, head up to that crosswalk over there to the right and just stop there for a second. Okay, now see that yellow building across the street with the green and yellow sign? That's Tondi's Tavern. And it's named after Peter Tondi, a Revolutionary War hero who organized resistance to the British in his very own pub. Imagine if we had been dry back then. I'll tell you more about him in a minute, but first, it's time to wet our whistle again. So let's cross the street and head over to Ton D's. Hit the button and cross when it's safe, and I'll meet you on the other side. Hang a left and stop just before the entrance to Ton D's by the parking meters. The Ton D's building dates back to 1853, right around the time when the dries were starting to make progress in Savannah. Long before it was a bar, it was a bank, and then during the Union occupation of Savannah, it was the headquarters of Union General John Geary. Okay, here we are at Tondi's. In a moment, I want you to put me on pause and head inside. When you enter, you'll see the bar on your left and some steps leading down on your right, just next to the host stand. First things first, head over to the bar and get yourself another drink, whatever you feel like. Then, once you've got yourself a beer or a cocktail, I want you to head downstairs. 
If there's someone at the host stand, you just tell them you're with Detour and that Willie, the owner of Tondi's, said it was okay for you to take a look around some. And once you're downstairs, hit play again and I'll meet you down there. All right, when you're ready, hit pause and go on in. You downstairs? All right now. Face the stairs you just came down so that you're looking towards the street side of the room. See that brick wall past the stairs? Do you notice anything there? You should see another bricked over archway. I've got it on good authority that this is the other side of the tunnel you just saw down by the vaults. And like I said, there was supposedly a whole system of tunnels underneath the city streets where barrels were rolling off ships to keep us liquored up. This isn't the only tunnel in Tondi's either. Facing the stairs, take a look to your right. Do you see that door there that says employees only? Well, that leads to a storage room and a prep kitchen. They got a big old oven in there where they make their famous mason jar cheesecake. But that's not all that's in there. Take a look at your phone. You should be able to make out another bricked-over tunnel behind the oven. Thank God there's no reason to use them anymore, but I sleep better knowing they're there if we need them. All right, with your back to Tondi's, turn left and head back to the corner we came from. So why did the Feds finally repeal the 18th Amendment? By the 1930s, popular support of Prohibition had plummeted. The national argument to repeal the 18th Amendment echoed what Savanians had been saying for years that prohibition didn't stop alcohol from being sold, it just drove the commerce underground. So cities, state, and federal governments were losing out on billions in tax revenue. And let's face it, money talks around here, don't it? Up at the corner, cross the street towards that big white building with the green trim. Okay, y'all on the other side now? Great. Keep walking straight with that big hotel across the street on your right. Sure, some dedicated prohibitionists weren't willing to give up the fight, but others actually switched sides, like the famous philanthropist John D. Rockefeller. He spent a bunch of his own money to support the 18th Amendment before ultimately realizing it caused more harm than good. Hell, and then he spent money to support its repeal. As you walk by Churchill's Pub on your left, check out the side of the sidewalk. Those glass panels cover up what probably used to be access to their cellars like the windows we saw back at the pirate's house. Who knows what kind of shenanigans took place in there? Anyway, in 1933, Congress passed the 21st Amendment to repeal the federal prohibition. But that amendment left it up to each state to decide whether or not they wanted to be wet or dry. And that gave the dries in Georgia their own loophole. So Georgia was a dry state until 1935 when public sentiment overtook them. When Prohibition finally ended once and for all, this town went wild. And not just with drinking. Up here at the corner, hang a left and then continue walking. Hell, there was gambling, dancing, fighting. Anything else you could imagine was taking place in those saloons. And that's where my family comes in. In the early 1950s, my daddy started opening bars up in this town. At the lane up ahead, watch for cars to your left and keep walking straight. Classic cocktail bars with names like George Jr.'s, Papa John's, The Black Lace, The Canopy, The Carousel. Eventually, Daddy owned about 10 to 12 drinking establishments both here in Savannah and in Tybee Island. Back then, it was only my Daddy and about three other families who owned the majority of Savannah's drinking establishments. 
They were all major players, and most importantly, they were all good friends. At the corner here, watch for cars to your left and then cross straight. But there were still people, often motivated by religion, who believed in temperance. And while they weren't going to convince anyone to ban alcohol entirely, they were able to pass some restrictions on how alcohol was sold and consumed, all in the name of the Lord. These blue laws included limitations like hours and days of operation. Up here at the corner, cross straight watching for cars both ways and then keep on walking. So bars had to close at 11.30 on Saturday night and no one could sell booze on Sundays. Also, people could be sober for church the next day. At the corner here, turn right, and cross the street when it's safe towards that brick building with the old neon sign and continue walking straight. Similar to the state of prohibition in 1908, these laws were imposed on Savannah by the state. Once again, Savannians found themselves being told what they couldn't and couldn't do, and you guessed it, it didn't go over well, which is why the bar owners back then found ways again to skirt the laws. One of Daddy's establishments used to be right on this street, and even though it's not here anymore, I can show you one of the ways he kept the drinks coming. Up ahead on your right, you will see a building with three tall windows on the ground floor. Stop in front of it and look across the street. Now take a look at the building with the green awning and the big cedar doors. This place right here may look like your typical dance club of today, but it holds a special place in my heart because it used to be the carousel. One of my daddy's bars, it was open in the late 1960s through the early 1970s. But it was more than the carousel, and that was the secret to how my daddy got around the blue laws. The first floor right here, that was the carousel. A perfectly good drinking establishment, but one that, woefully, had to follow those damn blue law rules. Close at 11.30 on Saturday nights and stay closed all day Sunday. But this place also had another bar that stayed open past all hours and it was in the basement. In fact, it was called the basement. Take a look to your left. That last big window over there? Well, that was the entrance to the basement. So, why was the basement allowed to stay open? My dad pulled some strings, and he probably passed some money under the table to someone somewhere, all to get it listed as a club. Actually, as a supper club. That's right, the basement was a members-only establishment. Don't get me wrong, it was a bar and it served plenty of liquor, but because he served some food that no one probably actually ate, and most importantly because you were technically paying for your membership and not for the booze, he was allowed to stay open and allow people to carouse until the wee hours, even on a Saturday. And the best part? You could drink at the carousel on a Saturday night until 11.28, buy a membership to the basement at 11.29, and be drinking again by 11.30. Does that remind you of anything? The basement was kind of like the locker clubs we talked about before that served the blind tigers during the prohibition. My daddy found a loophole in the laws and used it to keep our city wet even when the blue laws tried to prevent it. All right, facing my daddy's old bar, turn left and head back the way we just came. Now, a lot of people, myself included, considered my daddy a local hero because he fought against the laws that restricted our right to drink. But just like before, there were folks in the 50s and 60s who didn't like what he was doing. It wouldn't be Savannah without a few drives left around to mess it up for us wets. But by this time, 
The Dries had law enforcement really on their side. Hang a right at this corner and keep on walking. In those days, it wasn't prohibition agents. It was the FBI, or the feds as my daddy called them. The feds didn't take too kindly to the fact that only four families, including mine, were running all the bars in town. They actually called it a monopoly. To investigate, the feds sent a mole to Savannah to work in the bar business. Up here, watch for cars on the right side as you cross the street. This mole got himself hired at a couple of places in town. He poked around and he asked a bunch of questions. But not only do Savannians like their freedom to drink, we're also a very close-knit community. Most people wanted to protect my father and the other families from getting into trouble. So just like Agent Jesse Mercer back in the days of Prohibition, that mole fed left this town frustrated with no proof of anything. Okay, up here at the corner, stop and turn around to face the three-story building with the brown awning. Remember Peter Tondi? Well, that plaque to the right of the door marks this as the very site of the original Tondi's Tavern. In the 1770s, this is where some of the most righteous rebels in Savannah met up to plan the revolution, including the Sons of Liberty. Hell, Tondi used to stand right there at the door and prevent anyone who wasn't a revolutionary from coming in. Savannah's history of booze and rebellion is encapsulated perfectly right here on the very spot which you stand. Okay, let's keep moving. With your back to the Tondi's Tavern plaque, cross this big street. Broughton, and head toward the off-white building with the tall windows. I'll meet you over there. Okay, guys, you with me? Now turn right and walk down this street with the side of the old Tondies on the other side. Now back to my daddy. His bars had a great long run from the 50s to the 70s as he walked the line between playing by the rules and keeping the doors open and the regulars happy. But after a while, he started to feel like it wasn't worth the risk. The feds seemed determined to find any damn reason they could to break up my father's little empire, and his underground clubs would have fit their bill. Rather than take the chance, Daddy decided to get out while he could, as did a lot of the other bar owners back then. The result was a lot fewer places where you could get a drink anytime you wanted, no matter what the damn laws said. But just because the bars themselves were playing by the rules didn't mean our rebellious streak and our commitment to our freedoms had wavered. First, we fought for, and in 1998 finally passed, an open container law that you've been taking advantage of all night. Like I said, that was mostly because the locals and tourists demanded it for the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade. At the intersection up ahead, look both ways for cars, cross straight, and then hang a left. In 2011, the sale of alcohol on Sundays was finally legalized, but of course, there were still restrictions on it. We have to wait until 12.30 p.m. to buy hooch on Sundays. But we're fighting that like we always have. And now there's a movement to expand the open container law to all of downtown, not just the 10-block radius closest to River Street. Make a right down this lane here and keep walking. So the battles continue and probably always will. Otherwise, what would we do with ourselves? We're heading to our last stop, and it reminds me a lot of the type of places my daddy used to run and the type of places that were around during Prohibition. Keep going past all these electrical meters on your right. Up ahead you'll see a door with a sign above it that says Alley Cat. Stop on the sidewalk just to the left of the door. Savannah has always fought for our right to imbibe, 
and today that history is celebrated at places like this. Did y'all find it? Welcome y'all to the Alley Cat Lounge. The Alley Cat is literally an ode to Prohibition, including its basement atmosphere and its extensive cocktail list. They even print their incredibly extensive menu, seriously, they have over a hundred different drinks, in the style of newspapers from back in the 1920s. Sadly, folks, this is where I'm going to have to leave you. But in a moment, you should head inside for that last call. If there's someone at the door, tell them you're with Detour, head downstairs, and imagine you're in one of those blind tigers from days gone by. Order a cocktail and raise a glass to all the wets that we talked about today. After all, this place might not be here without them. Last thing, tip your bartenders well. Good night, y'all.